Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. I am here with James Turner today, who is the chief executive of the Sutton Trust and previously was the Deputy Chief Executive of the Education Endowment Foundation, which is a sister charity to the Sutton Trust. So he's been involved with the Sutton Trust for quite a while in different capacities. And he's also a trustee of the Brilliant Club and the Center for Homelessness Impact. So, James, welcome on board. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and the Sutton Trust. Yeah, well, thank you, Alberto, and, you know, and great to be part of the podcast. Yeah, so as, as you said, I've been in the sort of Sutton Trust family of charities and foundations for some time. So actually started my journey here like, back in 2004, 2005, working on a, the research and the policy side of the trust work. Um, and I've been lucky enough, I guess, to be part of the trust as it has grown from an organization of three or four people to a much bigger organization now and along the way uh, was privileged enough to set up um, with a number of other people the um, Education Endowment Foundation, mm-hmm. the sister foundation you met, you mentioned, um, which is really um, at the vanguard of the what works approach here in the UK. So how we can become a bit more sophisticated about measuring impact, particularly in terms of sort of educational projects and school improvement. Um, So I was there for, at the start of that, um, as you said, number two for four years there. And this is, I think, week three or week four of of coming back to where I started, the Sutton Trust, um, as its CEO. So um, a long association with the trust and with education and philanthropy in the UK, but um, a lot has changed in those sort of 14, 15 years. I can imagine. And the Sutton Trust, so it was founded uh, over 20 years ago, back in 97. It's uh, really focused on improving social mobility in the UK. Uh, you have a really robust and wide-ranging portfolio of programs, and I know in terms of age ranges, anything from early years through school, college, university, and even workplace, trying to fight inequality. And tell us a little bit about the Sutton Trust and the work. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the, the trust journey itself is, is quite interesting. So as you said, we were founded in actually 97, so just over 20 years old, by the philanthropist Peter Lample, who mm-hmm. remains our you know, chairman and heavily engaged in the work of the trust. Um, and essentially, you know, the journey the trust has been on um, is from that being, you know, a, a vehicle for Peter's philanthropic giving back mm-hmm. in the day. He's given, you know, in excess of 50 million pounds to the trust over the years. But now we have a much more sort of diversified model. So the, the, the nature of the trust has changed. But I think the focus on education and social mobility has remained constant. And as you uh, and as you say, our work goes all the way through from the early years up to sort of access to the workplace and access access to jobs. I think what's uh, what's different about the trust than the many other sort of foundations and charities out there is this combination of research and policy work alongside practical programmatic work, which we've found to be a really good combination in that the practical work really means we sort of understand the issues facing young people young people are interested in and it gives us a real credibility with policymakers 
And likewise, the research and policy work really informs what we do practically, but it's also a way of having bigger impact. We maybe reach four, five, six thousand students a year, young people a year, but obviously through policy and through working with governments and other commissioners of services, we can have a much bigger impact. So we're particularly interested in social mobility at the high end, I guess. Okay. You know, who, are the, who are the future leaders in our society who are taking the top jobs, the most sort of prestigious and influential jobs, not because we don't think it's important to look at education inequality and social mobility further down the chain, mm-hmm. but we think the people in that strata of our society just have such a big impact, it really matters that they are representative of society at large and shouldn't just be the, the well-off and affluent. Two observations, I guess. One is the Sutton Trust doesn't shy away from nudging policy forward and knowledge nudging policy makers uh, i think you, the research that you come up with sometimes in conjunctions with the london school of economics and other really mm. great institutions is not only thought-provoking but i think uh, it probably sort of gets uh, politicians attention quite a bit doesn't it yeah it, it does absolutely and i think we're you know there needs to be a sort of a depth and a substance and a quality about to our research which has always been really important to the trust but we also need to get that research out there get it in the papers because that does influence, you know, it opens doors for us in terms of advocating policy positions. But it also, as you say, gets, gets politicians and other decision makers interested. And we've never been afraid to sort of, you know, ruffle feathers and you sure. know, where necessary, um, you know, be controversial or provocative. Often say, you know, we don't have all the answers, but mm-hmm. this is an issue that we all need to collectively work together. I mean, when I when I started at the trust, you know, the, the word social mobility was or the phrase social mobility was was a fairly sort of technical word from, from mm-hmm. the sort of world of academia and it's only really you know since i think it was a 2004 2005 election there was quite a lot of talk about the importance of social mobility and it's really become you know lots of government strategies documents press releases now refer to that term it almost suffers from being used too much i think um but it's it's evidence of how the debates moved on the other observation i had is also in terms of your focus on the intergenerational component when i wear my hat in the sort of developing world the the intergenerational transfer of poverty is a big a big topic and one that's not immediately evident but you, you you tackle that also and you say you know intergenerational mobility is something that we need to be aware of, the hurdles that sort of manifest themselves over generations. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, one of the difficulties of sort of dealing with social mobility is it's hard to know how socially mobile the young people of today are going to be. I mean, we look at intermediate markers around, you know, educational performance, um, you know, which sort of jobs they're going on into, mm-hmm. and that gives us a sense of how mobile they're going to be. But obviously, it's only by looking historically that you see the sort of pattern on social mobility and you know there is some evidence um, that social mobility in the UK along with some other you know developed countries has sort of declined and that's one of the sort of driving forces behind you know what we do now some of that evidence you know other people have different opinions on but I think there's a there's a consensus that social mobility is not as high as it should be it's not as high as it is in other countries and education is a key driver for that Mm-hmm. And that works across generations. You know what your parents do, how much they earn, what occupation they have. Unfortunately, still has a big bearing on what the children go on to do, and it's it's weakening that link. I think that we're interested in. How does the UK stack up to the rest of the European Union, the rest of the 
developed world. There's some research you've done back in 2005, I think, with the LSE, with the London School of Economics, which looked at sort of comparative analysis between UK and, and other uh, countries. W where are we? What's the state of affairs here in the UK? Yeah, well, that research um, that you mentioned going back um, to 2005 from the LSE, that showed that social mobility was uh, low in this country um, compared to other countries, you know, particularly Scandinavian countries, but I mm -hmm. think it also looked at places like Canada, for example. And it also showed, so we were, we were low, um, we were low alongside America. I think, you know, the US also suffers with a sort of social mobility or an income mobility problem. Um, but what was different from some of the other countries that that research showed was that there was this evidence of this decline. So that students or young people born in the 50s, 1950s, were more mobile than maybe those born in the 1970s. He went to sort of school in the 70s and 80s. So that was a big, um, you know, there was a, you know, obviously people generally think things are improving. Sure. Um, education opportunities are getting better. But there is this, you know, concern that you know, opportunities may have dipped, particularly for sort of low income students. There's almost a bit of an arms race in social mobility now. My colleagues talk about this, that, you know, education is such a currency that, understandably well-off parents do all they can to give their young people an advantage so it's more it's harder and harder for the state to sort of compensate for that interesting uh, you, you mentioned the term arms race and actually pure coincidence but i came across that exact terminology uh, reading an article looking at sort of private tuition and prep courses that parents are, are paying for to ensure that their kids perform as well as possible in different exams it was mentioning an arms race in terms of look if you, it's such a competitive world to get your kid into a top school that you're going to do everything you can. And therefore, if you do have the disposable means to, to, to pay for very expensive private tuition, you're going to avail yourself of that. And, and it certain, certainly brings in certain dynamics that are worth probably ex exploring from a policy perspective. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think uh, and we, see, you know, we see something similar in the UK, which a certain trust has done a lot of work on sort of charting the rise of paid for tuition, which mm -hmm. obviously, you know, is only available to those who can afford it. Um, so you have a, you know, you have a segregated school system, you know, in, in the UK, in England particularly, we have you know, where, how much your parents earn dictates a lot which school you go to. Then you have um, this sort of burgeoning private tuition market as well. So mm -hmm. you have probably advantaged children getting a further further ahead and more of an advantage through sort of paid for out of school work. Um, and then, you know, you see in the even in the sort of the, you know, tertiary education, you know, now more and more students are getting degrees. Mm -hmm. um, it's have you got a master's? Have you got a PhD? Have you got an internship? Um, so the, the, the barriers, the hoops that young people have to jump through to sort of prove their worth and give them an advantage over someone else is, is I think, increasing. Um, I guess the question is, you, you can't stop and it probably wouldn't be desirable to stop well-intentioned parents from doing all of those things because obviously everybody wants the best for their child and, and you know, the young people they care about sure so for us it's what foundations like us can do other charities what the government can do to at least try to level the playing field so that um those parents who can't afford these sort of opportunities can offer there is something to offer their children um, yeah. and so specifically on tuition for example we've talked about you know a voucher scheme or something in order mm -hmm. to allow 
less well-off parents to sort of pay for the things that well-off parents pay for. Has that been sort of well-received or is it in the exploratory stages? It's in the exploratory stages at present, I think. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, school budgets are tight. The mm-hmm. financial climate is very tight um, in the here in the UK. Um, then we do have the people premium in England, which is this amount of money that every school receives for a disadvantaged young person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, you know, a good step forward. There's a question about how that is used, but that could be used for extra tuition. It could be used in a very tailored way to help disadvantaged children. Uh, and not just, you know, the disadvantaged children who are struggling with literacy and numeracy, but also, you know, the very able disadvantaged young people who mm-hmm. probably need that, that extra opportunity or that extra bit of support in order to get, you know, A's and A stars in their exams or go on to top universities. Educational inequality. So what is, what are the key things? If you could grab three or, or five things without being too too simplistic, what, what are the key obstacles? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we have to recognize that um, a lot of how well a young person does educationally is determined by things beyond the school gates. So, you know, a majority is not about what provision they get in school. It's about their home environment, parental engagement, all of those things. So that is a key driver. And it's something that was very important to us at the Education Endowment Foundation. You know, we know that if you have an engaged parent, you're much li- uh, much more likely to do well educationally and academically. The conundrum is, um, how do you get parents to be engaged? You know, right. What policy levers do you pull? How do you make sure those sort of initiatives and programs don't just appeal to those who are doing these things anyway? Um, so that's a big part, I think, of the, the equation and what we need to, to think about. I mean, for the young people, we are particularly interested in the trusts, which are these you know, low, moderate income, but you know, young people with huge sort of potential. It's a combination of aspirations, attainment, but also, I guess, advice and guidance about the appropriate next steps to take. They're all obstacles that they face. So without a doubt, if you look at the leading universities here in the UK, there's a huge effort. There's a lot of goodwill to try and get more students from disadvantaged backgrounds into those universities. But obviously, you know, pe- people need to be able to cope with the academic course. And so the lower academic attainment of young people is a from poorer backgrounds is a big issue now that we don't think is because those young people don't have that academic um, potential it's just they haven't had the same chances to realize it so a big part of what we're trying to do in the uk um, in the school system of course is make sure that young people from disadvantaged backgrounds do really well in school you know, right. academics are absolutely key um, for, 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 for making social mobility happen. However, we also know that even if you control for academics, you control for attainment in exams, young people from poor backgrounds are less likely um, to progress to certain universities, less likely um, to progress into certain careers. And I think that comes down to this sort of information and advice and guidance deficit. Right. So, 
we find that the young people we work with and their parents have really high aspirations for what they want to do, but they don't necessarily have all the nuance in terms of how they realise those aspirations. What are the next steps for them to take? So, uh, you know, do they understand the differences between different courses and universities? Do they realise the importance of the subject choices they're taking at A-level? There's a whole range of things around making sure you know, these really able students are making the right, appropriate, informed choices about what they do next. So even if you set aside academic attainment and say that's not something a foundation like ours can realistically deal with, Mm -hmm. there's a lot we can do around this aspirations and advice and guidance piece, piece, which we think makes a big difference. I noticed one of your programs is precisely about advising teachers on how best to help students apply to top universities. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, day in, day out, it's obviously teachers who have the most contact with the young people we're interested in. So the advice and guidance they give is crucial. And understandably, you're a busy teacher, you're teaching your subject. It's very hard to keep up to speed with, you know, what the latest is in terms of university access, where, you know, which courses are best, how best to write a personal statement, all of those things. But if we can, if we can influence and reach one teacher, obviously that has a huge sort of multiplier effect in terms of the um, young people they're going to help and support over the next year, two years or so. Um, again, getting the right teachers, you know, they're very busy, getting them to give up time, getting them to engage is a challenge, but it's one that we're, you know, really keen on working with over the next few years. From the admissions angle at, at top universities, is there a consideration given to the background of the individual, of, of the applicant, in terms of you have two candidates who are on paper equally able, but one possibly has had all the benefits of the, the private tuition that we, we spoke about a minute earlier, and the other one, not only have they not had that benefit, but also probably had to overcome quite a bit of adversity, whether that's in a family environment or, or, or in some other uh, guise. Is there much effort being uh, made by, by the admissions side to, uh, to pay attention to these factors and to take them into account? Yeah, there's a lot of energy, effort and money which is going into this. I think you know that universities have got a lot better over the last 10 years or so in collecting contextual data on the students that, that, right. that come to them. So, you know, are they, you know, what sort of school do they come from? Were, you know, were their A-level grades or their predicted A-level grades being achieved in a really challenging environment? Are they the first in their family to go to university? Were they eligible for free school meals? Which postcode do they live in? All of these things, I think, is data that universities now have at their disposal. I think one of the, the challenges that we put back to the university sector is how mm-hmm. they are using this. Okay. Um, because it's not consistent and it's not always transparent. So some universities absolutely would make a different offer to a young person based on contextual factors so they would say you know you're you come from this particular socioeconomic background you live in this particular area you're you know you're you're doing really well in a challenging school environment so rather than it being you know three a's whatever to get into our course we're going to you know um, allow you to come in on an a and two b's or something like Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. recognizing that there's that pent-up potential in these young people for other universities, it's more just a flag. You know, they flag that this young person comes from a sort of a, an underrepresented background, but exactly how that information is used, you know, is not clear. 
Um, and other universities are very clear that they're not going to make lower offers. They can't make lower offers. Young people, regardless of their background, need to reach the same academic threshold. And that's that's the way it is. So we're pushing for more openness on this, more transparency on this. And ultimately, we would like to see more contextual offers because we can do as as much as we're doing as foundations, lots of other charities working in this space as well. But we're competing against huge educational disadvantage in the system. So unless we do something at the admission stage, I think what we can do in terms of transforming the makeup of top universities will always be limited. And I guess at any rate, irrespective of any of this, you still have to have that individual, that that young adult submitting the application. And yeah, I imagine they don't always do. Yeah, no, that's a big you know that's that, that's a big issue. And universities and us are you know are doing a lot to try to help young people understand that you know, leading universities are places where people like them can fit in and do well. And a lot has been done on that over the years. Um, I mean, places like Oxford and Cambridge still have a big challenge just because it is so ingrained in the sort of English psyche about what it means to go to Oxbridge. And we, Mm -hmm. you know, we've surveyed teachers and parents and pupils about this and, you know, their perceptions are often out of date. They think there are more privately educated young people at those institutions than there are in reality. Right. Um, some teachers are reluctant to advise their brightest students to go to these universities because of fears they won't fit in. Right. So there's quite a lot we need to get over in order, as you say, Alberto, to get these young people to apply in the first place. Our experience is that those students from the sort of backgrounds we're interested in, when they get into these top universities, they tend to do just as well as their peers. You know, they sort of thrive in those um, those environments. I mean, you know, it can be overwhelming going to, uh, you know, an, an op Oxford or Cambridge College if you've come from a sort of inner city state school. Mm-hmm. So I think the more we can do to prepare them for that before they go there. Um, but also I think universities are much more attuned to supporting young people from low income backgrounds when they are at university. So I think things are changing, but it is, you know, it is a big culture shock. You know, we do a lot of work with top universities, we do a lot of work with top professions, and from the sort of backgrounds we go into, the first time they go to an Oxbridge College, the first time they step into a big bank here in the city, you know, it's, a, it's an overwhelming and daunting experience, but it's one that we want to, you know, help them to feel comfortable with, um, help them to fit in so they really thrive when they're given these chances. That's interesting. How are you uh, and how's the trust working with uh, professional bodies, whether that's in law or finance? Or how are you trying to um, improve access into the professions yeah i mean it's been an interesting evolution for the trust i think when we started off we were you know you have to start somewhere so our focus was on well let's get them into a top university and hopefully everything else will follow but we know that that's not necessarily the case Mm -hmm. um so over the years we have a big program for example called pathways to law which has been um very successful and that works with um in this case the legal sector really to support students early on, so from age 16. And the purpose of that program, I guess, is to ensure that the young people um, from the backgrounds we're interested in with the academic potential they have, um, A, they get into the universities and the courses where law firms tend to recruit from. Mm -hmm. So they have the right start in terms of a higher education background but also that they develop those other skills, the employability skills, um, they get over some of the concerns they may have about being overwhelmed or daunted about working in a city firm, whatever it might be. So the second track is very much about, you know, 
getting these young people to develop these employability skills, giving them a work experience placement, giving them some tips and hints on interviews, how to present yourself, all of those things. So they have the right academic background, but they also have, you know, what our, what we tend to call now those sort of essential life skills, those mm-hmm. soft skills, those employability skills, which are needed. You know, the academics are necessary, but they're not sufficient. So we need to make sure the young people we're interested in have that other dimension too. And the employability piece is key. I, I see that in a lot of different foundations and charities. And, and even when I was at the Duke of Edinburgh's award, you know, these mm-hmm. life skills and, and the reality is you do have many young people coming out of school who, who would struggle to, to do well in, a, in an interview with some of the basic, basic standards, I guess, that you would expect in a professional setting. Yeah, that, yeah and they're ab- absolutely right. And um, then, you know, there's a debate about you know, the extent to which city firms, employers, graduate recruiters or whatever should recognize that not all young people come from the same starting point and are we trying to impose sort of middle class values and expectations on young people? Um, I mean, we just take a very pragmatic view that mm-hmm. at present the rules of the game are this. This is how you know the interviews work. This is how the selection process works. So let's equip the young people with most interested in with the skills they need to do really well um, in the process, the system as it exists. If we go to the other extreme of this spectrum, when you and I first met, it was around the context of early years, early childhood education, early childhood development, an area very close to my heart. How are we here in the UK set to provide very strong environment for children to um, to thrive in the early years. Well, again, you know, the, the sort of the social mobility, the education inequality sets in early, unfortunately, as you know, as well as me, Alberto. So, you know, the, the work we did at the Sutton Trust, you know, there's other people who have done similar work, showed that age four, children from disadvantaged families are almost a year behind their peers. So even before they start school, there is this big gap um, in terms of development, in terms of vocabulary, in terms of many other um, factors. And obviously schools then are constantly trying to address that. And actually in the system, unfortunately, those gaps tend to widen rather than close. So the, the issue um, is, is, is there right at the start. Um, and so the importance of trying to intervene early you know, is crucial. Um, mm-hmm. Certain trusts has tended to focus on parental engagement you know, as a okay. particular driver, which I mentioned before. Sure. Um, also early language is key to opening up opportunities what we're worried about at present is just the infrastructure in the in England to support that um, some some work we did I think it was last year showed that you know as many as a thousand of the Shore Start centres um, in England have closed since 2010 now Shore Start centres were the sort of uh, the focus of support particularly for disadvantaged parents um, and young children in an area and if those centres go, where are those families accessing support preschool? Um, right. Now, there's some really innovative, interesting models that have sprung up. But without that focus um, and the sort of investment that Shore Start represented, there is just a concern about, you know, are families going to fall through the net? Is the uh, provision high quality? Is it consistent across the country? Yeah. So one of the things that we're keen on is trying to get more investment in this space. And the quality piece is key, isn't it? I mean, it's not just about having a a, a building where where kids can can go to, but actually having high quality teaching, high quality uh, provision of caregivers is, is is key, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's right. You know, there's, you know, there's some good evidence around, um, you know, how in an ideal world you'd have a more highly qualified early years workforce. And for mm-hmm. some experts, you know, very, you know, very eminent people in this area, that's a real priority is can we uh, get more graduates, for example, into into early years, which is very rare at present. Um, you know, for others, it's about you know we have a workforce. It's probably not going to change. So how do we provide them with the training and the support to do the best possible job? But you're absolutely right. I think a lot of early years provision tends to focus sort of on the childcare aspect as opposed to the sort of education aspect, and it's right. the quality of that education. Um, that is the driver of social mobility, not just the fact that these young people are being looked after. Interesting, very interesting. At the Sutton Trust, I, you know, besides having a, a, a broad and robust portfolio of offerings and interventions, but how do you figure out which ones are working, which ones are not, which ones to underscore and, and drive forward, and which ones possibly to uh, to call it a day? How, how do you go about impact measurement and and uh, understanding the um, the, the value that your your programs and, and projects are providing. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's really important to us and sort of built into our DNA and actually was the reason that, um, you know, we were, uh, you know, involved in setting up the Education Endowment Foundation. So the Education Endowment Foundation has really led um, the increased use of robust measures of impact and evaluation in mm-hmm. schools. I, I think the commission now almost 200 randomized control trials in education, which aren't the answer to everything, but they are a very important part of getting consistent and comparable evaluation across projects. Right. Um, and so that is something that, you know, you know, very much in line with the um, Sutton Trust approach, um, always looking to monitor and measure the impact of what we do, tracking the trajectories of the young people we work with. Now, and crucially, and the data is allowing us to do this more and more, comparing them to some sort of control group. So what would, you know, we can definitely report that our students, when we work with them, do brilliantly, but how much more brilliantly do they do had we not intervened? Right. Were these young people on, on a trajectory for success anyway? Or have we made a you know a really big difference? And so, lots of data here in the UK from the well from you know from the National Pupil Database to the data UCAS has on university admissions. There's some really interesting data sets that then link up to employment outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, with all that data, it's much more feasible to do um, you know relatively affordable and proportionate but robust evaluation of our programs. And we do always review those programs. So sometimes we stop things, you know, we recognize, right. you know, we gave it a good shot, but this isn't not working. And, we, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky enough to have the sort of, you know, to be able to take risks, but also have the confidence sometimes to say, you know, it's not worth carrying on. Now, equally for some of our long-term programs, it's about constantly refining them, tweaking them to make them more successful and, you know, to have more impact on and are your supporters um, perfectly happy uh, having you take sensible risk as you, you know, as you embark on different initiatives or projects? Is is that part of um, of the proposition? Yeah, absolutely. We're we, you know we're lucky enough to have you know a range of supporters, individuals, foundations, corporates that um, sort of buy into what we're trying to do, not just the sort of the mission, but also. The approach, and I think you know some of the more sophisticated funders in all sorts of you know spheres, but in education particularly, 
recognize that if you take a really serious look at projects, there are going to be some times when things don't work as you planned or you expected. And so it's much better to review than to carry on. Sure. Um, you know, I think a lot of poor quality evaluation, you know, just sort of pre and post questionnaires, that sort of thing, always comes up with positive results. But actually, the more the harder you look at something and the more robust you look at something, the more likely you are to find issues, problems you need to address. And, you know, we're lucky enough to have funders who appreciate that and um, give us the freedom to, to change. And not to plug your, your organization, but, I mean, you are a foundation that is very much seeking financial support. It's not that you have a, a benefactor and everything's great. You, you, do, you do wish to have... Um, an engaged donor base and, and have people support you. Is that correct? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So, you know, we're lucky enough to have some, some good supporters. We haven't got an endowment, so we know we have to fundraise for everything we do. Um, you know, we know we're lucky to have, you know, Peter Lample as one of our, our, our big supporters. And as I said at the beginning, really engaged and has given, you know, lots of money to us in the past. But absolutely right. We're looking for partnerships. We want to do more. Um, you know, we want to work with more foundations and corporates to expand our work and, continue, and to continue it. The Sutton Trust, the game plan is to be there in perpetuity. So, yeah, that's so, right. I correct. mean, yeah, absolutely. So we're 22 years old. Um, you know, we're, progress is being made on some fronts, but this this problem of social mobility is, you know, stubborn and it's not going away. And so we think there will always be a need for our work. It will have to evolve. It will have to change. Um, but in 20 years' time, we still want to be running practical programs which help young people, thousands of young people a year. But we also want to be um, holding government and policymakers' feet to the fire on social mobility so they, they, you know, they continue to act uh, in, the, in the best interest of the children we're interested in. No, that's fascinating. Now, I know in the UK, you are pretty much the gold standard for, for, for looking at issues in social mobility. It's difficult to read in the papers about research that's come up on this topic that doesn't have the Sutton Trust fingerprints on it. It's really interesting. Let me ask you, for those listeners who are maybe really passionate about this space but who are not based in the UK, uh, for those listeners who maybe are running foundations or charities elsewhere, how can they avail themselves of, of some of the learnings that you've developed and try to see if, if they can deploy similar interventions in their uh, geographic areas? You know, we're, we're, Although we are focused on... Um helping young people in the UK and on policy, you know, here in England. We've always been a very sort of outward-looking international charity, trying to learn from what works elsewhere, but also, you know, partnerships with, um, you know, foundations and think tanks and other organisations in other jurisdictions. So always open for those, you know, conversations. Always happy to um, speak to organisations wherever in the world if they're thinking of you know re replicating our model which is this combination of research and policy plus programs mm -hmm. or they're interested in a particular issue or they want to collaborate on some sort of cross jurisdiction pieces of research for example you know we're always open to that and there's lots of examples of us working um in that way in the past do you want to give me one uh, tell me a little bit about some of the collaborative relationships you have with other uh, foundations We've had a long-standing relationship, for example, with the Carnegie Foundation in New mm -hmm. in New York. Okay. Um, it's been on a on a on a on a series of sort of policy and research pieces looking at issues 
around social mobility, issues around university access, but also issues around, you know, school performance and what um, similarities and differences there are between the US and the UK in terms of inequality, you know, pre-16. Um, so that's a, that's been a great partnership. You know, it, we've learned a lot from the US experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's borne out a lot of research which is sort of comparative so looking at rates of social mobility in the uk versus the us and some of the the reasons behind that mm-hmm. um, and, you know and we've you know we've worked with um uh, you know a, a number of um foundations in you know australia and canada as well so um always have that view on what's beyond the british isles and what we should be learning from other countries that's excellent in terms of your accessibility, if somebody listens to this podcast and they say, yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. I'd love to drop uh, James a note. What's the best way of somebody getting a hold of you? Is it just through LinkedIn, Twitter, email? Yeah, go to, <clears throat> go to the SunTrust website. Um, and there's my profile and you can get in contact with me um, via that website. So that's the best way. And I'm happy to yeah, get into a dialogue with um, anyone who's interested. No, that's great. So as we're wrapping things up, and I'm mindful of your schedule, as you know, the Do One Better podcast is really about inspiring uh, people to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. So, keeping that context in mind, what's the is there one key takeaway that you'd uh, you'd want our listeners to uh, to grab onto? What um, if they if they if they remember nothing about today's conversation? What's the one thing they should remember? I think the one thing. Um, that I always remind myself about our work and the work of other people in this sector is that quite often you focus on the negatives, you focus on the low social mobility, you focus on the inequality. But I think what we have shown and what other organisations working in the space have shown is that change is possible. And we have many, many examples of brilliant young people who have done incredible things because of our work and their own efforts and the work of others. And I think rather than being too bleak about it, I think remembering those um, great examples of socially mobile, brilliant young people really sustains sustains me throughout the day and also shows what philanthropy can do and how change can happen. James, thank you so very much for, um, for joining me today and for shedding so much light on the work you do and the work of the Sutton Trust and, uh, and the research and programs as well. Really appreciate it. You've been very generous with your time. Um, before you go, just to let listeners know, uh, if you want to get a hold of some additional resources and, uh, and get a hold of the uh, episode notes, by all means, just go to Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. You'll be able to see the episode notes, additional links that we'll have to some key research from the Sutton Trust as well, and, um, and also put in James's um, uh, details as well if you do want to drop them a night. So thanks very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm -hmm.